Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11. Uh, It's in the bulletin for you if you'd like to look at it there on pages 10 and 11. I believe, yes, 10 and 11. Uh, Great. What an awesome song that was, Uh, Psalm 23. Uh, We played that the morning my dad passed to be with the Lord, and as my dad listened to that song, he kind of stared off, and you can almost see that he was already seeing uh, Christ face to face. Uh, and music just has that powerful effect for us, doesn't it? It helps us to, to internalize these spiritual truths and realize uh, the truth of the gospel even more clearly. So thank you, Jesse. So let's uh, turn and read Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11 together. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. And he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. We're in awe of you. Lord, we're dumbfounded that the creator of the universe, the one who sustains us, the one who gives us life, that you would look on our broken, weak frame and call us beloved. Lord, remind us today that you don't see us as scoundrels. You don't see us as people to be rejected and scorned. But you see us as your sons and daughter, ones who you gave your life up for. Lord, I pray as you remind us of the gospel, that you'd open our hearts and our minds and our ears to you, or that you would change us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this passage, Isaiah is bringing a word from God to the Israelites, to God's people, a word of comfort to them. 
And as I think about our lives day to day because of the pandemic, because of relational strife, because of issues at work, because of the realities of sin, the realities of death, the realities of the broken world we live in, each of us, week in, week out, day in, day out, we're experiencing sorrow and grief. And God promises us in, in Genesis 3 after the fall that that's going to be a reality, that the lives we live are going to be hard. And we can't escape that. And in the midst of that unescapable reality, we're looking for comfort. And we do that in all sorts of ways. And I was looking at uh, some articles this week, and because of the pandemic, the sales of sweatpants are on the rise, right? As we face these uncertain times, we're, we're looking for ways to just make ourselves feel better. And so we do that through buying comfy clothing. We do that by uh, overindulging in food we like, overindulging in maybe alcohol or some other things. And some of these things are good, and some of these things are bad for us and harmful for us. But we're all searching for comfort. We're all looking for something to satisfy and to alleviate the grief that's within us. Because if you look at the, the definition for comfort, the definition of comfort is the alleviation of grief, of sorrow. And as you look at the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, there's this uh, very um, evident cycle that's happening. And so God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the southern kingdom, to the kingdom of Judah, and he's saying to them, you've fallen away from my commandments, you've turned your eyes from me, the living and true God, and instead you've decided you want to worship and follow false gods, gods that are deaf, dumb, and blind, gods made of gold and silver and wood that don't bring anything to you, that don't give you life, but instead bring destruction to you. He looks at them and he says, you've put into place oppressive laws. You've downtrodden the poor. You've forsaken the cause of the widow and the orphan. You've chosen to worship false gods that require you to sacrifice your own children. You've made pacts with foreign governments that hate me. And God looks at this condition of his people, this utter depravity, this utter, utter sinfulness and brokenness, and he says, come back to me. Come back to me. I love you. And in the midst of the, the, the calling out of his people's sin and iniquity, he scatters in these chapters and these, these sayings of his grace and his promise to redeem his people. We think of Isaiah 9 that we often quote around Christmas time, uh, for unto us a son was given. That there's a coming Redeemer, there's this coming Messiah that God's going to send to redeem his people to himself. But as you read those first 39 chapters of Isaiah, at times it can be a bit of a slog. Because you're going through it and it's just one thing after another after another that, that Isaiah is calling out in the lives of the Israelites. Saying, these things that you're doing, they're going to bring destruction down upon you. They're going to bring, bring ruin they're going to bring death. And right now you feel like these things are going to give you life, but that's just not true. And each of us can sympathize with that reality. 
as we look in our hearts and our minds, we can recognize that there's things in our lives that we are committed to, things in our lives that we continue to pursue that only bring death, that only bring destruction. And God promises to the Israelites that if they did not return to him, if they did not repent of their sins, change their minds, and turn towards their God, that the path that they were on was going to lead to destruction. And so God pleads with them through Isaiah for years and years and years, turn back to me, I love you. But as we learn in Second Chronicles and in Isaiah, that doesn't happen. God's people reject him. And ultimately, the treasury of the king is raided and the people are carried off into captivity in Babylon. And so as Isaiah is prophesying that this is about to happen, and, and he says this in, in chapter 39, just the chapter before, he says to Hezekiah, the king of Judah at the time, and he says, if your course doesn't change, this is what's going to happen. Babylon's going to come. And this is what Hezekiah, how Hezekiah responds, and I think we'll all find a bit of similarity here. Hear the word, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your in flesh and blood, will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord, and then this is Hezekiah's response, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought... There will be peace and security in my lifetime. And if you look at Hezekiah's perspective, if you look at the perspective of the Israelites at the time, their perspective is not focused on long-term, generational uh, success, but they're just focused on the right here, immediate gratification in front of them. And Hezekiah's like, I'm going to do what I want to do right now, and I'm relieved because I can do what I want to do right now because all this is going to happen after I die. And don't we think the same sometimes? And so we hear the voice of the, of the prophet Isaiah uh, calling out our sin this morning. And as he prophesies that message of destruction, that message of sorrow to God's people, that's not where he leaves it. Because as we then move on to chapter 40, this is what God proclaims to his people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so God's declaring to his people, even though you've suffered utter destruction, even though you've suffered sorrow and the loss of everything that you hold dear, even though you've faced my discipline, that's not the end of your story. You're not going to live the rest of your days without hope. You're not going to live the rest of your days without an alleviation of your grief. For your sins have been paid for. And so in this, he's, he's pointed to two things. He's saying, first of all, that they faced the discipline of God. And God disciplines us oftentimes through the consequences of our sins. <laughs> because he says, don't touch that. Don't do that. 
don't touch the stove. And what do we do? We touch the stove. And then we have the burnt fingers and we face the consequences and we feel the pain. And so God sometimes gives us up to our sins so they will run their natural course so that as we hit rock bottom, we're reminded of his faithfulness and we're reminded of his goodness and we're reminded that he promised to never leave us. And he uses those circumstances in our lives to turn us to himself. And what he is proclaiming to his people is that he is going to do that for them. That they're going to face his discipline and they're going to return to him. And he's going to do that. They're not going to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They're not going to slap themselves in the face and splash cold water on their face to get themselves back in the game. No, God's going to bring them back. God's going to restore them. And so this is the message of comfort that God is, is proclaiming to the people, that in spite of their sin, in spite of the sorrow they face, comfort's going to return. And we ask, how is he going to do this? He's going to do this through Jesus Christ, through the hope, through the beauty of the gospel. As we continue down in the passage, verse 3, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. If you know the Gospels, you know that this verse is attributed to John the Baptist, that John the Baptist is the one who is the voice calling out in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. And when Christ uh, becomes a human, when he walks on this earth and as he goes to the Jordan River and sees John the Baptist, John identifies Christ as that Messiah. John identifies Christ as God, that God has come. And so we see that this passage is not simply speaking of God coming to rescue his people, but it's in this uh, immediate historical context, but it's pointing to Christ. It's pointing to Christ. And he's saying this, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so what Isaiah is saying is that Christ is coming with absolute certainty. Because the imagery he uses there about the mountains being brought low, the valleys being raised up, as we think about that, those are obstacles to travel. They're the things that historically have just stood in the way of mankind as we're trying to get from point A to point B. As I think about this, I was thinking about the trips we would take as, when I was a kid to western Pennsylvania to go to Geneva College, where my parents graduated from. And to get there, we'd have to go through the tunnels that go underneath the mountains there in western Pennsylvania. And why do we have things like, mount, like those tunnels? Why do we have things like bridges? Why do we have things like roads? to make travel possible, to get over these obstacles that are just naturally in our way. And so when, when Isaiah is saying these things are going to be flattened, these things are going to be smoothed out, he's saying nothing's going to stand in the way of the coming of Jesus Christ. Nothing is going to keep him from coming for his people. All these natural things that we're used to slowing us up as we try to get from point A to B, those things are not going to be in his way. And he further stamps at this reality by saying, and all mankind together will see it, 
For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He says, no one's going to miss it. It's not going to secretly happen. We're not going to be like, oh, did it happen or did it not happen? No, it's going to happen. And how do we know it's going to happen? Because God has spoken. That God has said, this is the reality. This is going to happen with absolute, utter certainty. And that's the hope we have. That's the comfort we have, that Christ is coming for us. Christ is not going to be uh, (laughs) laid up by our sin. Christ is not going to be deterred by wars. Christ is not going to see, oh, well, there's a pandemic happening. I should probably wait and travel once that's over. No, anything that's happening in our lives, anything that's happening in the world, nothing's going to stop him. It's certain that's our hope. And if that's our hope, then we can live our own lives centered around the gospel. We can live our lives out of that, that source of hope and peace that we have in the certainty of the coming of Jesus Christ. So as we go to our jobs, as we interact with our families, as we raise our kids, our grandkids, as we interact with our friends, all those interactions can be centered around the hope of the gospel. And what does that look like? Oftentimes, as we enter into these, these spaces of vocation, these, these spaces of duty, as whatever your, your job might be, your vocation as a parent, uh, your vocation as a friend and a neighbor, son and daughter, oftentimes we'll hit moments of fatigue as we're in those various vocations that are in our lives. We'll hit moments where things are getting bumpy, there's conflict, you're just not feeling it, right? You're just like, I'm really just tired of doing what I'm doing. I don't want to do this anymore. And we'll get these places and, and we will then be working not out of the abundant hope of the gospel, but we'll then instead be operating out of a sense of dissatisfaction, a sense of fatigue, a sense of, of sadness. And when we do that, we're focusing on the immediate situations in front of us that, yes, do fatigue, that are difficult. But the gospel gives us the hope that everything we do, no matter how difficult, is full of meaning. Why? Because you're full of meaning. Because Christ looks at you and says, I'm coming for you. I love you. And because he says that about you, then any, every interaction you have with other people is filled with meaning. And you can work and play and have relationships with excitement and enthusiasm, knowing that Christ is coming, that life isn't pointless, life isn't hopeless, but instead there's great comfort in the gospel. Uh, my sisters and my mom and I have a group text uh, that we communicate through, and usually I say one-word answers and skip a lot of the messages because they talk a lot. Uh, <laughs> And those of you who know my family know that's true. Um, and my, my older sister, Abby, she, uh, works as, she works at shock trauma at University of Maryland Hospital down in Baltimore. And so she was working night shifts this week and was just really struggling, really tired. She had a couple of patients that were kind of on the brink of death all night. And so she got home from work and, and just texted us. I was just like, you know, I'm ready to quit. This is so exhausting. This is so difficult. All this... All this stuff is happening. Um, 
And the reason my sister's a nurse is because she just loves people. She has such a heart uh, and a desire to care for others. And when we have that heart and desire and we go into situations like that, we're just, it's so easy to get fatigued. And so the question I, I have and what this made me think of is, is where is our hope in those situations? When we're facing that as teachers, as bosses, as coworkers, as social workers, maybe even volunteering with Mercy Ministry, how do we fight that fatigue? Well, there's the hope that if Christ is coming with certainty, there's a day that is coming where none of that will be needed anymore. There's a day that's coming where we won't need nurses. There's a day that's coming where we won't need social workers. There's a day that's coming where we won't need counselors, where we won't need police officers, where we won't need um, abuse counselors. Because Christ is going to come and he's going to restore everything. All the brokenness we see around us and we experience, it has an expiration date. It's going to go away. And that's the hope that can give us new legs. That's the hope that can give us strength on the days that are difficult. Because we look ahead to the work that Jesus has promised that he has done and will do. And he's coming and he's going to wipe these things away. So we can live our lives around the hope of the gospel. And Isaiah continues and he says this, A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. Grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of our God stands forever. And so what he's saying, and there Isaiah then brings up, is this concept of our mortality. That uh, no one in this room... Uh, is going to escape death. All of us, with utter certainty, are going to die. Um, and that's difficult for us. Because death is anxiety-inducing. It's the thing that we think about as we lay in our beds at night in the dark and we can't sleep. And our thoughts maybe drift to that. I'm like, what's death going to be like? And the hardness of it is we don't know. We don't know what that actual experience is going to be like, and so it, it terrifies us. We're terrified of the pain of it. We're terrified of the uncertainty of it. And in our society, in our culture, we try all that we can do to push death to the sides so that we don't have to look at it, so we don't have to think about it. Up until about 150 years ago, when a family member would die, the viewing would be held in the front room or the parlor of the home. And so the family would be very involved in the process of, of uh, preparing the body for burial, for getting the viewing set up and receiving the friends and the family. And so death was much, very much so front and center in the lives of many families. And then over the years, this thing called funeral parlors popped up. And the funeral parlors are called funeral parlors because they're kind of taking that place of what used to happen in the home, and now instead it happens in the separate place. And kind of a byproduct of that, what we've seen is that that's put distance between us and death. 
And so death no longer happens front and center in our living room, but instead happens elsewhere. And so we tend to try to do all we can to avoid it. But Isaiah doesn't let us off the hook. He says, you're like grass. You're like wildflowers. Someday you're going to die and you're going to turn to dust, just as the sunflowers uh, of the summer have recently just fallen apart, disintegrated, and blown away. He compares us to that. And as we look at ourselves and the life around us, we recognize that's true. And as we wrestle with that reality, as we come to terms with that, what I've noticed is that it's really hard for those who don't have the hope of the gospel to wrestle with death. Because if you don't have a hope and assurance of what's coming after death, how can you accept death? How can you rest in the fact that death's an inevitability? It's really difficult. And so Isaiah calls us to wrestle with our mortality, wrestle with the fact that none of us gets out of this alive. And as he does that, he says this at the end. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. What is this word of our God? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel stands forever. The truth of what Jesus Christ has done for you and me stands forever. It's certain. And if that's true, we can wrestle with our mortality. We can wrestle with sickness and death. And we can be distressed by it and anxious by it. And at the end of the day, trust our God. Turn to him and say, we love you, you love me. Father, I pray that you would take this from me, that you'd help me to trust, that you'd help me to rest. Because of the gospel, we can accept our immortality and trust in God. As I mentioned a couple of moments ago, thanks to Jesse's song, um, my dad died a couple of years ago. And for those of you who knew him, many of you in this room did. Um, he was an elder here for many years, and he had ALS for about a decade, and uh, his lungs were starting to fail, and so uh, we decided that um, it would be best for him to go peacefully uh, with hospice assistance. And ALS affects your body, and it paralyzes everything and starts to make all of the muscle groups in your body die. And, but it doesn't affect your brain. So when my dad... Right before my dad passed, he was totally alert, totally there mentally, but he wasn't able to speak, he wasn't able to walk, he wasn't able to move, all these things. And so we obviously had a couple of days heads up that this was going to happen, and so we picked a Monday morning to have hospice come in, and they gave him morphine, and we weaned him off his ventilator, and he, he died peacefully. But we told him on that Saturday, my mom uh, sat with him and explained what was going to happen, what was happening in his body, what was going to occur. And his response to that uh, was to smile. <laughs> and I look at that, and it's just so encouraging to me. What a gift that God gave me, gave all of us, as we think of this example, of what embracing and accepting mortality looks like. And he looked at this, and he knew that he was going to see Jesus. He knew the surety, he knew the reality of the gospel, that it was true, and that, it was going, uh, that he was going to receive that ultimate comfort from Christ. And so on Monday morning, 
you know, all of us kids were there and we were, you know, playing worship songs and and there's a really great version of that song, Psalm 23 by Shane and Jane, uh, where they sing it with the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Beautiful, beautiful song. So we had that up on the TV and he just had this faraway look in his eye. And you could see that he just had this sense of anticipation all morning. He didn't cry, which was astounding. I didn't see fear in his eyes, but he looked forward with anticipation. And the reason that's possible is not because my dad was so great, you know, I love my dad, but it was because of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus had such a firm grip on my dad that in that moment, he had hope and anticipation. And that's what the gospel does in our hearts and in our lives. That's what Jesus promises to do. That he's going to come and he's going to help us in those moments. And he's going to give us all the grace and the power we need. And this hope and this joy we have in the gospel is not meant to be kept under wraps. It's not meant to be kept to ourselves. It's not meant to be just talked about in hushed tones and in Bible studies and in our church building. But it's meant to be taken out. It's meant to be shared with those in our lives, with our family members, with our coworkers, with those we're in relationships with. Look at how Isaiah continues. He says, You who bring good tidings to Zion, you who bring the gospel to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. We're meant to share this far and wide because this is the hope, this is the joy we've been given in Christ. And as I say that, I don't mean that we need to, you know, strap on sandwich boards and grab banners and go out on the street corners, although you certainly could do that. But instead, that as we have this deep abiding hope and joy in our hearts, that it comes out of us as we interact with other people. All right, think about, you know, folks that have a really uh, keen interest in something, whether it be a band or some type of... Uh, you know, hobby that they really enjoy. And as you start talking with them, it just starts oozing out of them. It just starts coming up like everywhere <laughs> as you talk with them. You'll see it on hats and t-shirts that they wear. You'll see it in bumper stickers on their car. And you get the sense they really like that thing. Um, and the same should be true of us as believers. As we have this hope of the gospel that it just kind of bubbles up as we are refreshed by the Word of God on Sundays, as we're refreshed by it, as we read, as the Spirit is moving in us, as we're praying, it starts to just come out in our conversations. And that's how the gospel is meant to be shared, not in a disingenuous, superficial way, but in a natural outpouring of relationship with others. And it's meant to be shared. It's meant to be shared. I love how this passage ends in verse 11. Uh, it's beautiful. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. This picture is of a gentle shepherd. He picks up his sheep, holds them close, gently leads them. As I read this, I think of how I pick up my baby girl who turned four months old yesterday, which is crazy. And you know, she's got that new baby smell and I'll hold her in my arm like this. 
She'll grab my arm here and grab my chest here. And her, her head will rest against my cheek. And we'll walk around together. And sometimes we'll walk outside and she'll stare at the leaves and I'll bring her up close and she'll kind of grab at them. And I just walk with her and talk with her. Sometimes I pray with her. And that's how I picture Jesus is going to be with us. When he comes to us, he's just going to pick us up. He's going to walk with us. He's going to be gentle with us. And we're going to be with him in that eternal comfort forever. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice that you love us, that you gave yourself for us. And I pray that we would live with hope. Or that you would rid us of ourselves, that you'd fill us up more and more with you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.